I serve as a pastor here at Covenant Church, and I'm super thrilled to be kicking off this new series called Cornerstone, where we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about the church. Now, that seems a little redundant, okay? We're all here sitting in a Sunday morning service, and we call ourselves Covenant Church. All of us say that we're going to church and that we're part of a church, and for many, this is self-explanatory. But the vision of the Bible with regards to what it means to be a New Testament church is much broader in scope than that we typically realize today. And what we want to do with this series is really dive into what the Bible actually says about what it means to be the church and also uh, what we're, how we're supposed to be functioning as a church and in the context of the church universal. So we want to answer a few of these questions. What is the church? Why do we celebrate baptism and communion? How do we govern ourselves as a church? And why is it important to be a part of a local church? We want to answer and tackle these questions with this series this month. And we really want to talk about why it's important that we remain committed to a local church just like Covenant Church. Because the triune God has chosen uh, the church to be advanced through his, to advance his kingdom. And he's placed us here at Covenant Church to be one expression of the gospel here in Bowling Green. So we want to look at what Scripture has to say and give us a fresh understanding about what it means to be the church and what we should be doing and how we should be functioning. And most of all, we want to highlight Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the cornerstone of the church. He is the foundation upon which all of this stuff is built. The church universal is built, and it is he who continues to build the church to the glory of God the Father. This morning I was up nice and early just putting the finishing touches on my sermon. And sometimes whenever I'm alone in the morning, on top of all the different kinds of readings that I like to do, sometimes I'll go to YouTube and watch different clips of movies that I really like and I find really inspirational. And this morning I found myself watching clips of The Lion King. And I bet bet a bunch of you were going to think that I was going to say something about Frozen, but I put a moratorium on that movie in this pulpit. Now, I know that 95% of you have actually seen The Lion King, and if you don't, I'm probably going to spoil it for you. I'm sorry. So you have Simba, the son of Mufasa. He's been exiled from the kingdom, and he's out kicking it with his buddies Timon and Pumbaa. Now, the reason Simba was exiled from the kingdom was because his uncle Scar murdered Simba's father, Mufasa, who was the king, and Scar claimed the kingship of the kingdom for his own. So Simba leaves the kingdom, and he grows up, and he just forgets about everything. And there's this one scene where Rafiki, who's this wise old monkey shaman guru guy, he finds Simba after thinking he was dead, and he tells him, I want to show you something. And Simba follows Rafiki, and Rafiki tells him that his father, Mufasa, whom he thought was dead, is alive and well. And Simba's like, Hey, man, my father's dead. You're crazy. So Rafiki leads him into this pond with still water, and he tells Simba to look into the water. And Simba's like, that's not my father. That's a reflection of myself. And Rafiki says, look harder. And when Simba does, he sees his father. And Rafiki says, he lives in you. And right as he says that, Mufasa appears to Simba in this vision, and he tells Simba that you have forgotten me. And Simba says, no, I haven't. How could I forget about you? And Mufasa says, you have forgotten who you are, so you have forgotten me. 
Look inside yourself. You are more than what you've become. And Simba's like, you know, what's going on here? What do you mean by all this? And Mufasa leaves Simba by saying, remember. I think sometimes in the church, we forget where we've come from. And as a result, we forget who we are. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to reflect upon who the church universal truly is, where we've come from, and what we're supposed to be doing as the church. But before we do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the different things that you want us to learn this morning from your word. I pray that you'll help us to recover a deep sense of who we are in you and what we're supposed to be doing as your people, as the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things that we need to understand when we begin talking about the church is that God has always set his love upon a people and he has used ordinary people to achieve his purposes. So in the Old Testament, God set his love upon the people of Israel and the people of Israel were God's chosen people. And that brought with it certain responsibilities. They were to obey all of the laws that God gave through Moses on Mount Sinai. And they were, they were uh, to abide by the rules that God had laid out through Moses when it came to worship. Now, when we think about the Old Testament and the people of Israel, we tend to think that, that the people of God were only of ethnic descent. But we fail to remember that sometimes... Gentiles who came to know God would convert and be a part of this covenant community. And also what we sometimes fail to remember is that salvation has always been the same across the Testaments. It's by grace through faith. The children of Israel weren't saved by the works that they did. They were saved by grace through faith. Yes, they had to sacrifice animals because it wouldn't take away their sins completely. The sacrifices only covered their sins So God's solution to the problem was only temporary until the right time when he would send his son Jesus to pay the penalty for all sin. And throughout the entire Old Testament, you see this anxious anticipation of a new day when the Savior would finally get here and the love of God would spread across the world. But God's chosen people, the Israelites, fell short repeatedly in obeying God and being messengers of his love to all the nations. They grew haughty and they grew arrogant because they were God's chosen people. And they didn't want to share God with anybody else. It's the story that you find in a place like Jonah. But God says in Ezekiel 36, in sort of this obscure kind of reference, that the Israelites had profaned his holy name among the nations. And if there's one thing that God doesn't like more than anything else, it's when people profane his holy name. And the children of Israel were the chief culprits of this crime. When they were supposed to proclaim his name to all the earth and draw people closer to him, they drove people away with their idolatry and with their sin and with their exclusivity. They failed miserably in being a light to the nations. And as I mentioned before, the anticipation for a Messiah builds all throughout the Old Testament. A Savior who would redeem this world and restore it back to God the Father. 
Listen to the way God the Father speaks to God the Son, the Messiah, in Isaiah. He says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Israel was just the start of God's plan. The Messiah would usher in a new day when God's name would be spread across the world like wildfire and more people would be added to the people of God. And this new people of God is known as the church. Whereas Israel failed in their responsibility to be light and life to the nations, the church has the opportunity to pick up the mantle. Now, I don't want to get into all the theology that's surrounding this because theologians continue to wrestle with how Israel and the church relate to one another in Scripture. But I will say that now in this age, the people of God are those who have faith in Christ. And the opportunity to know God is available to the entire planet. It always has been, but now it's just more explicit. So you get to the New Testament, and in particular the Gospels, and you see Jesus dropping more and more hints of a new kind of God's people, those who know Jesus Christ and who want to spread his name across the entire world. He tells Peter that he will build his church, which is Greek for ecclesia, the called out ones, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He tells his disciples that there will come a day when all nations will come to know and worship God. Now imagine that you're a child of Israel and you've spent your whole time believing that you're one of God's chosen people. And now you're hearing that God is opening up his kingdom to the Gentiles. Imagine how that would make you feel. Imagine how you, you would feel when Jesus tells his disciples that a Roman centurion probably the least likely to be a God-fearing person, has more faith than all the children of Israel at that time. Think about the special status you, might, you thought you had, and think about what Jesus is doing with it. He's saying that God will make himself available to all the nations in a way he hasn't before. So in the biblical narrative, many of the Jews reject Jesus as God's Messiah. And Jesus dies on the cross, and he rises again, and he ascends to the, to the God the Father. But before he does, he tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. So when Jesus ascended to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit and the real birth of the church happens in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in the upper room and they begin to speak in tongues, that's when the body of Christ came into being. So the, the disciples, the first members of the church, preached the good news of Jesus to just the Jews because they still believed that the gospel was only for the people, the children of Israel. So God decides, decides to threaten a little bit of a, a curveball to Peter, who at the time was the leader of the apostles. And God gave Peter a vision of all different kinds of animals laid out on a sheet. 
Some were considered clean by Jewish standards, and others were considered unclean. You had kosher animals and animals that weren't so kosher. And God said to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, being the good Jew he was, he says, look, God, I'm not going to eat anything that you've considered unclean because I'm a good Jew. And God tells him, how can you call something unclean that I have made clean? And that metaphor right there is when God signaled to the apostles that the time for the whole world to be exposed to the good news of Jesus had begun. As Paul says elsewhere in his epistles, the gospel is for the Jew first and then to the Greek. And that's what you see all throughout the book of Acts. You see people of every known tribe and tongue coming to know Jesus. And because worshiping anyone other than the Roman emperor or the established Roman gods was illegal in those days, the church was under heavy persecution by the authorities. And what you see all throughout the New Testament epistles is the apostles trying to encourage the church to remain faithful in their task of proclaiming Jesus Christ to the nations. And that takes us to this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And as I mentioned, Peter was one of the primary leaders of the early church, and he wrote his epistles to bring encouragement and spiritual nourishment to the church at large. And in this passage, Peter wants to direct the church to live into their identity as living stones upon the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says here. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter calls Jesus Christ the living stone who was rejected by humanity and yet precious and chosen by God. So immediately he sets up this dichotomy between the choices of humanity and the choices of God, which he elaborates on. The the two are very different, but he goes on to elaborate on them uh, a little bit in the passage here. Now keep that in mind for just a little bit later. But Peter calls us living stones, and this is reminiscent of our identity as followers of Christ. C.S. Lewis calls Christians little Christs because as children of the king, we're to look, act, speak, and think like the king does. Our identity is to be founded as the people of the rock of Jesus Christ. Now listen to how we're supposed to relate to Christ as living stones. Peter says this, as we come to him, we are being built into a spiritual house. So Peter has in mind here the act of worship and how worshiping God is the lifeblood and connective tissue of the church. What's even more interesting is that when we come to worship God, He is building us up together into a spiritual house. And this reminds me of Christ's exchange with Peter in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus tells Peter that he himself will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a promise. and reminds us that the growth of Christ's church depends not on us because it is he who will build his church. Now, what are we being built into? We're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood where we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God in Christ. 
So whereas under the old covenant, priests spent day after day after day offering sacrifices on the behalf of the people in order to cover their sins, under the new covenant, Jesus has already taken care of that. He's covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. And when we put our faith in him, all the bad stuff that we've ever done has been retroactively covered by him. And all the bad stuff we ever will do is preemptively taken care of. And as a result, we're free, we're liberated to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God because they're pleasing to him. Imagine if someone put $10 million in your bank account and said, live your life however you want to. Imagine how free you would feel. You would live your life in such a way that would honor that millionaire who basically paid for you to live your life. You'd have such joy that you wouldn't want to do anything other than that person wanted you to. And in the same way, since Christ has wiped our accounts clean of sin, we're free to live our lives in honor of him. And that's what Peter means when he says that spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He means that we're being built into a spiritual house where we offer our lives as worship to him. That's not just good news. That's great news. That's the best news the world has ever heard. So Peter moves on to elaborate on what he's just told us. He says this, For in Scripture I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. So Peter uses the Old Testament to illustrate the point that the things precious to God are generally rejected by humans. And in this passage where Peter cites is from Isaiah chapter 28, where Peter is saying that while God has provided a way of salvation to the people of Israel, the people have rejected this offer of salvation. And in Isaiah 28, you see God is saying to the Israelites that all of his promises represented by a cornerstone are precious to him. And those who trust in the promises of God will never be put to shame. In other words, you put your hope in the rock of God's salvation, you have nothing to lose. And this is one of those verses in the New Testament that demonstrates how all of the Old Testament, like I said, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I think most of you know the story of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. After his resurrection, Jesus walks with these disciples on the way to Emmaus, and they have no clue who he is. And then finally, Jesus reveals himself, and he shows them all the pieces of the Old Testament that testify of him. I like to think that this is one of those passages that Jesus elaborated on, because Peter goes on to say this, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, this is another reference to the Old Testament, this time from Psalm 118. Let me read to you a few more verses of that passage. It says this, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. The Lord has done this. It's all a part of God's amazing plan that Jesus, the cornerstone of salvation for all of humanity, would be rejected by men and chosen and championed by God the Father. 
And Peter goes on to say that Jesus Christ is a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And again, he's quoting Isaiah 8, where where it says that God will make a people stumble and as a result, cast judgment upon them. And for Peter, Jesus Christ is the stone who will make people stumble. And as a result, when they stumble, they're casting judgment upon themselves. He says that people will stumble because they disobey the message. And what's the message? That the gospel message that God has sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins in order to give us abundant and eternal life. It's because of people's disobedience to Jesus Christ that they are casting judgment upon themselves, as Peter says. And Peter has in mind here not only humanity at large, but Israel in particular. Think of the irony throughout all of this, okay? God's chosen people destined to be a light unto the world, have refused to accept God's offer of salvation in the Messiah. And as a result, they've been succeeded by the church, which is composed of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The difference between knowing about God and knowing God is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of salvation for the church, prophesied in the Old Testament as the one who would bring salvation and redemption to the world and begin a new era of people coming to know God called the church. But what is the church? Peter tells us. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen to that. A chosen people. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to set his love upon us. Whereas Israel was God's chosen people for the Old Testament, God has called all of those who believe on his name to be his chosen people. And he calls the church a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, priests were the mediators between God and humanity. But Christ has broken down the veil between God and humans, and he alone serves as the mediator between us and the Father. And because of this, the church serves a priestly function and that we ourselves are mediators and messengers of God's grace to this dying and busted world. And we're also a holy nation. The church isn't some monolithic group of people. The church is composed of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And this isn't a nation defined by ethnicity or anything by anything other than the fact that we're being made holy and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And most of all, we are God's special possession. He loves us, and he cherishes us, and he cares for us. We belong to him. So now that we have the special status before God, that's something to be thankful for. That's great. Why? Why are we here? Why are, all, why are we these special things before God? He says it right here. So that we may declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have our special status before God 
because he's granted us such rich mercy in Christ Jesus. And now we're given the privilege of taking his name and declaring his name across the neighborhoods and in our communities and across the world. He has plucked us out of darkness where we served our own selfish desires and put us in the center of his warm, bright light where we are free to worship him in fullness and in truth. And he goes on to say that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Think about how far from God you once were. I know some of you have been Christians your whole life, and that's great. That's amazing. But many of you have an amazing story of God's grace and how God has rescued you from some pretty dark stuff. And maybe you're here today, and you're not a Christian, and you're going through some pretty awful stuff, and you know that if you keep carrying the burden yourself, it will kill you. I promise you that if you give your life over to Jesus Christ, he will have mercy on you and take that burden away from you. Think about what Peter is saying here, okay? You were not a people. We didn't have a common identity. We didn't have a common language. We didn't have a common goal. But in Christ, we all do. Where else do you see people from every single background imaginable coming together to worship the same God? Young and old, rich and poor, men and women. It's in Christ that we're able to come together and have rich, sustaining fellowship with one another. So Peter's telling us the story of the church, how we're built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and how we're given special status before God as his people. And as a result, we can live freely as his people who declare his praises all across the earth. He goes on to say this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now this is something kind of strange right here, okay? First, Peter says that we're foreigners and exiles in this world. But he's just declared us as this holy nation, this royal priesthood, God's chosen people. How can we still be foreigners and exiles? Now, a lot of commentators actually debate on what this phrase actually means. But from the text, we can gather that since we're a group of people without a geographical country or a physical flag, that automatically makes us immigrants in some way. We have a different kind of culture and a different way of being in the world. We give our lives over to Jesus Christ. We worship Him and Him alone. We serve others. We share life together. And we seek to be a witness to the return of Christ where He will make all things right in His time. And Peter is saying that our conduct as the people of God should be so honorable, so irresistible, so attractive and life-giving that even those who are adamantly opposed to the gospel will find themselves embracing it and yearning for it. He tells us to abstain from these sinful desires such as pride and greed and self-centeredness, not only because they're contrary to the way of God, but because we need to be the best witnesses for Christ that we possibly can be. Last week I talked about how as Christians we're guilty of some pretty atrocious things throughout history. And somehow God is still merciful and good to us. 
And because God is so good to us, he compels us to live good, honorable lives so that our friends and neighbors and coworkers, friends and family, whatever, we, they will see the hope that is within us, the hope that drives us and gives us joy. When people see us as hypocrites, as people whose words and actions don't line up, they're less compelled to give the gospel a chance. When people see that we take God's word seriously and seek to live it out with all of our lives, we're giving Christ a good name and declaring his praises to everyone that we know. Peter also makes mention of this day when God visits us. And on a day God only knows, Christ will return to the world that he created and restore all things back to the Father. All the pain all the brokenness, all the evil that you see today will eventually be abolished when Christ sets up his kingdom on this earth. And we as the church, the people of God, will finally see him as he is. And we will live with God on this new earth and sing his praises forever. I think I speak for everyone here when I say that I want to see every single person that I know on that day. But in the meantime, Peter exhorts us to worship God, declare his praises, and live good lives so that people will come to know him. So what can we take away from all of this? What does this mean for us here in Bowling Green, Ohio, here at Covenant Church? I think the first thing we need to remember is that the church isn't a building. It's a people. I think this is a simple change in language that I think we all need to make. You don't go to church. You go meet with the church for worship on Sunday mornings. Without people meeting in this sanctuary, this is just another building, another place for worship. The church isn't in one particular geographical location. It's in many, because wherever you go, the church goes with you. Sometimes we tend to keep church at an arm's length. Well, the church will do this, or the church will do that. But every time you say that, you better be looking in the mirror because it's you. You're part of the church, of God's people. You're part of this holy nation, this royal priesthood. When we begin to see the church as something that we, as not something that we do on Sunday mornings, but rather as a group of God's people whom we're a part of, I think it drastically changes our perspective. That puts the pressure on just a little more. It turns the heat up, doesn't it? Because of that, we're less compelled to cut off the driver that's annoying us or get involved in silly political debates or put our hope or our faith in something that isn't Jesus Christ because everybody's watching our lives so carefully to see if our words align with what we're supposed to be doing as the people of God. The church isn't a building. It's a people. And the purpose of the church is to know Jesus and make him known. That's our desire here at Covenant. You see it, to know Jesus, make him known. It's everywhere we go. It's everything that we do. But what Peter is telling us is that knowing God and making him known is the goal of the church. Remember the language that he uses, as you come to him, the living stone, he's building you into a spiritual household. And we're a spiritual household so that we can declare his praises. We're tasked as individuals and as the people of God to know Jesus, to make him known. And I'll say this too. 
You know, I get paid to preach and teach and lead a bunch of ministries at Covenant. I get paid to do ministry because I have more time to do ministry. But as the people of God, we're all called to be full-time ministers of the gospel wherever we are. We're called to know Jesus and make him known. My goal is only to help you with that, to equip you for that ministry. It's not to do the ministry for you or in your place. Peter doesn't say, well, you got your full-time pastors here and you got your lay people here. It's like, no, he says, we're all a royal priesthood. We're all a holy nation called to declare the good name of Jesus. And when we start to view ourselves as the church, the people of God, and as full-time ministers of the gospel, I think it'll radically change our perspective. That's why we're going through Saturate, this amazing book together, so that we can recover this sense of what it means to know Jesus and make him known in our local community as the people of God. Another thing we need to remember is this, is that Christ is the cornerstone. He's the creator, and he's the ruler over the entire church. Don't forget that. I'm not the ruler of, the ch- of this church. The elders aren't the rulers of this church. No one rules the church except for Jesus Christ. He is the light that we need to follow. He is the foundation upon whom all of this is based. And he is the one who will redeem and restore this broken, busted world back to God on a day of his choosing. When God looks down at Bowling Green, he doesn't say, well, that church is doing better than that church, and that church really needs some work over there, okay? He's saying, look, this is my church. This is the church. They worship in different places on Sunday mornings. Some of them do different things, but they're all scattered throughout Bowling Green. It's only one church, the church of Jesus Christ. We may go by different names, but it's all Jesus Christ. He's the ruler of the church. Think about this marvelous truth as well, that Jesus creates the church. He is the one who is building us into a spiritual household so that we can present our lives and our bodies as living sacrifices to him. And what a glorious truth it is that he is using us to bring about redemption and restoration in this world. We didn't used to be a people, but now we are through Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's what we celebrate right here, the communion meal. And what's crazy about communion is that we celebrated, we celebrate that our Savior has died for us. He's died for our sins. The death of Jesus is one of the most horrific, awful tragedies in humanity from one perspective. And yet it is the most glorious, triumphant thing that God has done in his perspective. Think about how God is taking something as ugly as death and turn it into something beautiful. And he's told us to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ until he comes again every single time that we meet. And that's what we do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here in a few moments. And come up here. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come and take a piece of the bread, his broken body, dip it into the cup, representative of his shed blood. And while you do it, I want you to remember all that Christ has done for us and for you, all that Christ has done for us throughout history, and all that Jesus Christ will do for us in the future. Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've rescued us out of darkness and put us into light.
I thank you that you have had mercy on us, Lord. I thank you that you've forgiven us all of our sins and that you've called us to be your church, your people, so that we can declare your praises across this entire planet. Forgive us in the ways that we trespass against you, Lord. Forgive us in the ways that we fail to do justice to your name. We give your name a bad reputation. I pray that you'll empower us, strengthen us to be your people in this world that so desperately needs your love. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.